0: The title of this essay is Dealing with Idiots. It concerns journalists predominantly. B-Sky B and Rupert Murdoch's takeover of Manchester United in 1998-99 was clearly no good for football or competition. Alex Ferguson engaged with fan organisation iMUSA, but later told The Guardian that so long as he had control of the team, it didn't matter who provided the money. Incredibly, Michael Crick revealed in his book The Boss that Ferguson actually wanted to buy the club himself. Helped by his fund manager son Mark, Ferguson prepared to rival the SkyBid, something that was never exposed in 1998 and which would probably have got him sacked for mutiny since, after all, he would be trying to oust control from Martin Edwards. It was all very unseemly, and Crick, along with the anti-Murdoch Group shareholders United, of which he was part, claimed victory... For that reason, I could briefly hold a share in Manchester United, thanks to my Uncle Ivor's gift, until the Glazers seized it off me and used it to leverage the debt against future success. Success is why the Glazers needed Ferguson. After the success of the treble win, Ferguson wrote his latest, sixth memoir, Managing My Life. He was given a million pounds advance and wrote it over the course of 18 months with the journalist Hugh McIlvany. Extracts went to both The Sun and The Times after Rupert Murdoch paid another £650,000. The book is long and full of omissions, with particular bitterness shown towards Brian Kidd, but it did the job nicely, selling 325,000 copies combined in the hardback and paperback. The hardback sold double what the paperback did. This was especially useful, as Ferguson would soon stop giving the time of day to the BBC and to many... Print journalists. According to Jonathan Wilson's book The Anatomy of Manchester United, in the year 2000 it no longer seemed that if you had 15 chances and the opposition 5 you would win more often than not. After a defeat against Real Madrid the theory seemed to run that if you have 5 chances and the opposition none you couldn't lose. In 2001, part of the problem was that Manchester United were rather too good domestically and kept coming unstuck in Europe as they sought another Champions League win. Michael Crick dedicates a chapter of The Boss to the media, noting how the Manchester Evening News refused to cooperate without going through the club first, which made Crick wonder if he'd travelled to Cold War Europe or Zimbabwe. The great Pat Murphy of the BBC does break silence, referring to the gulag of indifference to which some journalists are placed if they do not appease the Emperor. Danny Taylor's book, This Is The One, chronicles two years of ups, downs and a League Cup win, 2005 2006-07. The very first sentence of the book is as follows. He's an amazing man who brought football of butterfly beauty to United. Yet trying to establish a relationship with him is a continuous fourth-road bridge process, i.e. you have to start again once you've finished, like riding a bucking bronco. The media are treated like a loyal yet incontinent dog or an annoying younger brother whom Ferguson secretly likes. The line between respect and fear is as thin as Rizzler paper. The main problem is that it is, to Taylor, unfathomably difficult to predict whether we are going to get him on a good or a bad day. And yet, we would sit outside Ferguson's door for hours if it meant getting a few minutes on tape. Airport briefings were useful for hitting deadlines. Ferguson is always aware that his words make a good headline, letting journalists know that he knows that Wayne Rooney is box office gold. Whenever Ferguson has a go at one of the pack, the writers are far too gutless to stand up for one of their number. We will happily let him get on with it, which makes them sound like courtiers attending on a French king. Ferguson denies that his players go out to a bar even when a journalist from the Times tell him they do, having seen it with his own eyes. Talking of eyes, they are scanning the room, burning holes in everyone, testing you, looking out for vulnerable areas, trying to put you on the back foot. Ferguson's hands always seem to be in his pockets when he is unhappy. Meanwhile, he still gets his hair cut for eight quid and his car doesn't have blacked out windows. Taylor calls Ferguson in his book, This Is The One, an expert in football pitches, be it water, sunshine, length of grass. And sometimes journalists see him inspecting the surface like a forensic scientist looking for clues at a murder scene, pulling up blades of grass and holding them to his face. Patrick Barclay noted that the grass at Old Trafford now has a sign telling people to keep off the grass in five different languages. Football library visitor Tim Rich comes off very well from Daniel Taylor's book. At one stage, Rich recognises Glen cherry pickers, Bill Shankly's old village pit team, which Ferguson references. He can switch from fury to good humour in the space of 60 seconds. At one stage in the 2005-06 season, he reminds Taylor of the captain of the Titanic, waving away all warnings and driving full speed ahead. Instead of the treble-winning midfield, he has to make do with Darren Fletcher, John O'Shea, Alan Smith and Kieran Richardson. Brilliantly, Taylor calls United the football equivalent of the Rolling Stones. Struggling to find their old magic, a little frayed around the edges, no satisfaction. It is not the autumn of Ferguson's career, but the harsh and unforgiving winter. Even in the good times, he likes to keep his distance from Ferguson. The caricature is of a flint-faced authority figure, steam-shooting out of his ears as he stands in the dugout, menacingly chewing gum, ranting at the fourth official and pointing to his stopwatch. Yet, that is exactly what it is. A caricature. Humorously, Professor Damien Hughes copies this and the next paragraph verbatim without attribution in the introduction to his own book, Someone tell his friend Jake Humphrey, with whom Damien has just released a book, based on the podcast series High Performance. Ferguson is a natural storyteller. He gets jazz and has a wide knowledge when it comes to food. His press conferences can be tense, joyless affairs, crackling with friction. He can be impregnable, leaning back, hands behind his head, bored and fidgety, abrasive to the point of being monosyllabic and so downright exasperating you could drop a flowerpot on his head. He is not, however, an empurpled curmudgeon to Taylor, but a gregarious raconteur with an unstoppable enthusiasm for life. He will pick out a reporter who hasn't shaved or whose hair is a little unkempt and ask whether he's walked into an Oasis concert. He gets edgy when a reporter under the age of 40 shows up. Despite what Matt Busby told him, Ferguson would ring newspaper offices demanding to be put straight through to the editor after hearing that a reporter who works on his patch might be in danger of being made redundant. He once told David Meek that he thought David Beckham in a sparkly tracksuit looked like Gary Glitter. He was capable of being very funny, saying that a ref runs like the hairs of his arse are tied together, and at one time wearing a training top that had had Pudsey Bear sewn into it. He also treats MUT viewers to a blast of flower of Scotland after the 2006 League Cup win. Danny Taylor compliments Ferguson on eschewing cliches and speaking in plain English, but is critical of how MUTV is the only media organisation he indulges, stopping for five minutes after every match, answering a dozen questions, and then he's gone. Fortunately, a press officer records the interview and brings the tape to the press room so we can recycle his best bits. Then we jostle for position and hold our tape players to the television. It is an undignified process. When MUTV incurs his wrath, it is Blair refusing to be interviewed by Anton Deck, Dave Anderson of the Press Association was not allowed into conferences because, incredibly, he asked too many questions. Anderson told Michael Crick that there is a schoolroom atmosphere, a climate of fear. The Daily Mail wasn't allowed in until their sports editor changed. And a total of six main newspapers have had dealings and fallouts. The Sun and the Mirror are banished two or three times a season. One Express reporter made a joke about Ferguson tampering with recording equipment. Ferguson accidentally turned it off and the gaffer wanted a printed apology. A BBC producer called him pathetic, the fear he engenders. While Michael Crick also writes that one journalist shared out an exclusive to his colleagues so the finger of wrath would not smite him and him alone. At an FWA lunch for premiership managers in Taylor's patch of the northwest, Ferguson says not one word to the journalists, blanking us on the way out. After one conference, he knocks a set of tape recorders off the desk and into the wall, smashing one open and bringing the press conference to an end. It makes reporters think twice before asking something that he might not like. Taylor refers to The Question with a capital Q, which concerns Ferguson's own position. The gaffer declines to respond to Ollie Holt, who dares to ask it. Taylor says it's like being in the tumbleweed moment of a cowboy film. Holt, very respected, collaborating with Troy Deeney on his recent memoir, wrote a piece calling on Ferguson to retire. Indeed, he should have retired in 2002. The intensity and volatility about modern football media often upset Ferguson, who it seems gave as good as he got. All told, Ferguson is a propagandist of genius, obsessed with excellence. Fans treat the manager with veneration usually reserved for high-ranking priests, except for the anti-Glazer mob, to whom Ferguson says, let me get on with my job. Another time, he is spotted by fans at Lisbon Airport, bright red, looking around him for help. History has forgotten that South End United knocked Manchester United out of the League Cup in two thousand and six, even though Rooney, Ronaldo, Brown, and Mikhail Silvestra played the South End local paper dedicated twenty pages to the victory. They also took spurs to extra time at White Hart Lane. United went on to win seventeen of twenty one games, scoring about three per game and won the Premier League in two thousand and seven. At least Freddie Eastwood became a quiz question because he scored the South End goal. After beating Chelsea at Old Trafford, after beating Chelsea at Old Trafford, Ferguson takes a bow and throws his arms in the air, palms upward. The crowd roars. It's the first time he has overcome a Jose Mourinho team, and it's Chelsea's first league loss in over a year. The gaffer is aghast that no journalist can tell him the exact number of games in their unbeaten run. Weeks later, United are bottom of their Champions League group, not even slipping into the UEFA Cup. His fingernails give him away, they're bitten to the quick, notes Taylor. Ferguson's next press conference lasts 74 seconds and brings a mixture of laughter and anger, especially from the chap who drove 90 minutes to see this. Journalists cannot directly deal with players because of rules Ferguson's rules which mean they have to go through press officers, agents or image rights consultants. When Ferguson flies into a temper we know he is just letting off steam. In a strange way that's comforting when he has just tried to humiliate you in front of your peers. As football media migrated online so did elite level football become more nakedly about ownership models. Nowadays fans complain about referee allocations. I don't remember them doing that in the early 2000s. In 2005, it was Ferguson's idea of hell. Rolling news, a coterie of reporters, rather than the five or six who covered the region. Today's press, he says, don't want to know about the football side anymore. Instead, they want to know why players were not picked or if there is disarray in the dressing room. In 2006, Ferguson celebrated his 20th year at the club, but the celebrations made him appear distracted and uninterested, uncomfortable with all the attention. He plans to arrive through the back exit to avoid the cameramen, waiting for him at a lunch put on by Barclays. At the start of that season, 2006-7, to Ferguson was annoyed that a remark made in South Africa that Chelsea were hell-bent on ruining football had been reported in newspapers. He also stopped three players... Gary Neville, Rio Ferdinand and Wayne Rooney writing for newspapers. Predictably, Piers Morgan comes off badly in Daniel Taylor's book called This Is The One. In 1996, the then-editor of The Mirror splashed United's 5-0 loss to Newcastle on the front page. In 2000, Morgan mounted a campaign to save the FA Cup, given that United pulled out. He splashed on it nearly every day for two weeks... The Mirror also serialised Yap Stam's book, which Ferguson did not know he was writing. Nonetheless, United went on to win the league that season instead of Morgan's beloved Arsenal. Ferguson creates a siege mentality by telling fans to disregard newspapers even when they are reporting the truth. Fortress Carrington is tough to enter with three sets of barriers, while Ferguson decides just before Christmas to see journalists in a mass conference for 10 minutes once a week with no special treatment for the Manchester Evening News. After all, they once ran a poll asking if Ferguson should resign, which David Meek said had been sabotaged by Manchester City fans. The new restrictions all sound a bit pathetic, although there does seem pathos when the fanzine Red News unanimously says it's time to go at the end of the 2006 season. Unlike when he joined the club, where he saw himself as a bridge between fans and board, it seems not worth the hassle, Danny Taylor notes. The book is in the football library. Manchester United in the 1980s were like Arsenal today, a big club with glories a generation ago. In lieu of Arsenal fan TV, the United fanzines kept an independent eye on the club. I am positive they will pay tribute to Ferguson in their Christmas issues to mark the gaffer's birthday. I will celebrate it tomorrow on the seventh day of this 12 Days of Fergie series.